This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. So our changing climate and extreme weather conditions affects so many aspects of our lives and our environment. You may have noticed birds are nesting earlier. We're being told that some species' habitat is under threat. And yes, snake seasons are coming earlier and they're lasting longer. Now, Nick Healy, as always, your co-host of a Wednesday, joining you from ABC Shepparton. Nick, I'm going to take a stab in the dark and guess... That you're a snake man. <laughs> I do have a certain fondness for snakes. I do. Um, I think they're an incredible species. I think we're very, very lucky to live in a country with such a broad number of them population. I am. I, you're laughing at me, I but know. I'm genuinely excited about it. And I'm a real live and let live when it comes to snakes, spiders, and all of that. In fact, uh, you know, stay out of my ra- road for the most part, and I'm very happy to stay out of yours. But I've also grown up in areas where snakes were a fact of life. They weren't unusual to have around you. They were every year and you knew what to look out for and you knew to pay a bit of attention. They were just a, a fact of summer, um, a fact of spring as well. Um, it's been, I don't know, just something I grew up with. And I guess as Victorians, that's all of us, but we're starting to have to realise that it doesn't, you don't have to be in the country. You don't have to be hardcore and regional Vic to be living amongst snakes. And two of the experts that we'll have in today will tell you that, that they are everywhere, no matter <laughs> <laughs> Where you live, you just need to know what to look for. But that idea of learning to live with snakes, not to be afraid of them, and I like what you said then, of just learning sort of what to be aware of. Mm. But a part of today's program is normally we would know the time of the year that you start to look out for and when you would start to get your snake radar switched on. That's changing. And we've got an extreme summer coming as well. We've had a lot of rainfall. So looking at extreme weather conditions, how it affects snake populations, snake breeding, where they may be, how they may be acting as well. So we'll be looking into a lot of that today. We'll also touch on how venom is being used as a part of research. And something that I'm fascinated about, Nick Healy, and I'll be interested to know your thoughts on this, is should snakes be pets? Should is a big Mm. call. Um, I... Look, I firmly believe that having a snake licence and being someone who has done the right training to, to keep a snake should be a valid way of, of having that pet, but it's got to be super regulated and you've got to make sure that the actual care and the welfare of that animal is first and foremost. It is not just something to look cool while you walk around with. Well, does a, you walk around with a snake? Yeah, why not? I walk around with a cat. Why can't I walk around with a snake? Oh, so many questions. But... <laughs> Does a snake want to be in a house, Nick? Well, based on the amount of snakes I've seen in houses, I think they love it, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Oh, we're going to have some fun today. So have you seen snakes a little early where you live? Or maybe you just have a general snake question or a snake story or encounter. We certainly have the two experts in the studio to take your calls today. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, joining you from Melbourne. Your co-host, Nick Healy, joining you from ABC Shepparton. And in the studio, Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Timothy Jackson from the Australian Venom Research Unit, the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. A warm welcome to the two of you. Great to have you back in the studio. First things first, changing climate, 
uh, we're having extreme weather conditions, whether it be flooding, whether it be earlier summers. We know that we've got an extreme heat and hot summer coming this year. Are snakes coming out earlier and is snake season lasting longer? There's a really easy way to remember when to look out for snakes, and that's if the sun's out, there's a chance that you might come across them. It doesn't. Snakes don't hibernate across the winter. They do something called brumating, which basically means that they keep a pretty low profile. They don't really eat. But if the sun comes out on a winter's day, you might find one lurking about. So if you're tempted to go outside because it's nice and sunny, and over the last couple of weeks I think we've all been pretty tempted to go outside because the weather's been glorious, uh, there's a fair chance that you'll run across a snake as well because they're trying to lap up the sun too. But their reason for being out and about depends on the time of year as well. Like, obviously, they're out for food, they're out for warmth, they're out for mating as well. Now, traditionally, you could track when that was going to be or have a better idea of it. Behaviours differ depending on what they're outsourcing. Is that changing in terms of the weather change? That's that's a really good question. We're actually starting to look into that right now. We've actually just got about 60,000 uh, 60, data points uh, since 2000 uh, <laughs> tracking hospitalizations of venomous injuries. So one of the things we're looking at is, are we getting seasonal change and shifts in pattern of venomous injuries? Not just with snakes, with bees and wasps and ants and spiders and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, so we don't know at the moment. We suspect that they might be, uh, but we're having a look into that right now and wow. should hopefully know so next year. How did you say you're tracking this? Uh, we're looking at hospitalizations based on interactions with venomous creatures. Uh, now, some of those will be envenomings, uh, where the snake actually uh, bites them and injects venom into the system, and others will just be incidental uh, sort of interactions. Not, not all snake bites are venomous uh, in terms of there's not always venom being put into the victim. Uh, and so we're kind of tracking them to see how they work. And, of course, the vast majority of encounters with snakes don't result in a bite in any case. Uh, so there are other ways that we might be able to collect that data through snake catchers or just through having, you know, people call in and, and collecting data in a more casual manner. I love how you call it an encounter. Like, yeah. I just happened to <laughs> pop down to the shops and I had this lovely little encounter with a snake. Is that changing? You know, Nick spoke before about the fact is, as Victoria, we live amongst snakes. They are in our suburbs, in our cities, and of course in our regions. Our attitude towards snakes, is that slowly changing? I know just anecdotally with spiders, I know more and more people now <laughs> that are like, you know what, I don't feel great killing them. Mm. I try and catch Save them and them release all. them. Save them all. Even saying that makes me want to vomit just a little bit. <laughs> is our attitude to snakes getting better? Well, it's very hard to say. Uh, attitudes have always varied a great deal regionally. Uh, so I grew up doing snake shows in regional parts of, of the country, particularly country New South Wales, and for the most part people were, you know, of the only good snake is a dead snake sort of mentality back in those days. But I have a lot of casual discussions with people about snakes. Um, in my, you know, suburb in Melbourne there are a lot of tiger snakes and indeed tiger snakes and other species are present anywhere. There are watercourses anywhere. There's a bit of remnant vegetation uh, species are going to differ, of course, from city centre to city centre, but in Melbourne we have a lot of tigers. So I have a lot of casual conversations when I you know, spot snakes in, in the field and I tell people that they're there or also when people just ask me what I do for a living. And generally speaking, I encounter a lot less of that hard line, only good snake is a dead snake kind of attitude than I feel that I used to. So it seems informally, anecdotally, as though attitudes are changing. And most people recognise, yep, snakes are amongst us. Uh, best to just leave them alone. 
and go about your business. But I do every now and then also hear somebody saying, oh, those are terrible <laughs> or we need to get rid of them or whatever. And I, th- I think part of that's the growing awareness of, of the, not just the climate side of things but how climate is affecting the ecology and our environments yeah. around us and the realisation that snakes are a really important part of, of local environments. Uh, they're not necessarily bad to have around your, your house. They're going to be keeping rodent populations mm. in check and those kinds of things which can also do some damage. Uh, so if you see a snake around, uh, one, if you see a snake Take around, you're very lucky. Look, stay still, enjoy the <laughs> moment because uh, you're interacting with a phenomenal wild creature and it'll go about its business. I'm just going to mention, I, I lived in Leichhardt, a suburb of Sydney mm-hmm. that was famed for its Italian restaurants, mm-hmm. and it had an enormous snake population because so many <laughs> restaurants meant so many rodents, mm-hmm. which meant it was great for the snakes. But I just wanted to dive back to the dry bites or, you know, mm-hmm. bites where you don't get envenomated because venom is obviously not something to be wasted on sure. something you're not going to eat. So they're actually more common than I think people realise. They are, but again, any snake bite in Australia must be treated as a life-threatening emergency. So we don't always want to lead with the the idea that a high percentage of snake bites are dry. Yes, snakes do meter their venom, so snakes aren't in the habit of using all their venom on any encounter that they have. Snakes are very reluctant to bite in general. So again, bites are unfortunate accidents. They are ecological encounters between humans and snakes that go the wrong way for whatever reason. So it's it's, relatively easy to avoid a snake bite if you you are paying attention in your environment and and letting them go about their business. But then yes, as you say, a, a fairly high percentage it depends on the species, to be honest, as well. Mm. And we don't have amazing data on this kind of stuff either, but it does seem like, say, you know, the rate of dry bites in brown snakes is very much higher than the rate of dry bites in taipans, for example. But we don't want to say that those sorts of things too categorically because, again, we don't have a huge amount of data and any suspected snake bite even, even if, you know, if a snake's head comes in contact with you, even if the skin doesn't appear to be broken, that should be treated as a life-threatening emergency. We, we can have a look at the data that we've got, though. So in 2017-2018, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare released a study that basically said we get about 600 snake bites a year uh, in, that result in hospitalisations. Of those bites, about 100, I think it was about 150 or a little bit less, uh, are flagged as being a toxic injury, so suggesting that some venom was in the system, uh, which is obviously much lower. That doesn't mean that all of the other bites were dry bites. The snake might have uh, tried to inject the venom but did it at the wrong time, uh, got it down your jean leg or in your shoe or something along those lines or just missed. Uh, and then from those envenoming bites, only about 86 required antivenom. And how uh, many, and this is a question that I thought of but that's come through on text as well, how many deaths a year do we have from snake bites in Australia? We're phenomenally lucky in Australia in the sense that while we have some uh, highly venomous snakes, we've also got some of the world's leading antivenoms. So we only see on average between two and six deaths a year. But by the same token, very few bites, very few bites that require antivenom. So we're lucky in many, many ways in terms of our human snake interactions here. You know, if we were compared to somewhere like India, where there are over 50,000 snake bite deaths every year, you know, we don't even, you know, we're having 60 or 100 odd, you know. (laughs) <laughs> that even require antivenom, the situation is very different for a whole suite of reasons, yeah. Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Timothy Jackson are in the studio with you. They're from the Australian Venom Research Unit, the School of Biomedical Sciences at the part, as a part of Melbourne University. Tim's in Eltham. Morning, Tim. Yeah, good day. What's your story? Uh, a bit of an adventure on Sunday, actually. The sun was shining and I was out in the yard doing a bit of work. Uh, put a ladder up and it was about three metres up in the air, a, a dead tree with some uh, some bushes growing up around it. I climb up to the top and I hear a rustle. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was literally a, a identified the tiger snake. I think it was lucky that I was kind of uh, face to behind. I didn't see its face, but I saw its body and tail and it scurried off. In the off. tree? 
I was in the tree and I had my hands full, but so I couldn't, couldn't do a whole lot. So I kind of just paused, and once the uh, rustling disappeared, I um, went back to my work. But I was pretty nervous from then on. I think you've just instigated a new phobia in people, and that's snakes above <laughs> yeah. us. Uh, <laughs> snakes and trees. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like you've had a really positive encounter where you've seen a, a wild animal that's part of your local sort of environment and had no negative consequences. To be yeah. honest, I was more worried about you being up a ladder that high. <laughs> yeah. uh, Let's hope you're not over the age of 50. Statistically, they are more dangerous. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So we, we do have the perception in Australia that most of our venomous snakes don't climb trees, um, but a lot of... Of them are are what I would call go anywhere snakes. You know, they they can climb, they can swim, they can stay underwater on, for long periods of time. Yeah, on that note, mm. I was wondering. So we, I actually live very close to a train line, and it was mm. definitely a spot where it would have been getting a lot of sun up on sure. this little bush right next to the what what is a dead tree. And I was wondering whether there was a vibration element that was like wouldn't be on the ground, and perhaps because I did read up. I thought, oh, why would a tiger snake be so high up off the ground? I have heard they have been observed higher up but um mm. yeah i was three meters in the air and it was definitely a tiger snake yeah it's an interesting thought look they have been observed climbing many times so it's something that they do i mean i see quite a few dead tiger snakes on train tracks so they're not particularly good at avoiding the trains based on the vibrations so very very hard to say why that snake climbed that tree they'll raid nests there are many reasons why they might be up there um, would they this is going to sound like a ridiculous question, right? But I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm looking but forward to this. <laughs> do they then sort of stay in the tree? Like, are they just there looking for food and then they find their way back down? Or are they nesting to a certain degree? Like, this is comfy, this tree. I'm making this home. Look, they, yeah, they're not going to nest in a tree or anything like that. Um, but they're just they're just active foragers and, right. and they're also looking for basking sites. So if there's a good basking site up there, you know, the snake was getting up to a temperature that it liked, it might hang out there for quite a while. Tiger snakes are not what we call arboreal snakes, so they don't live in trees. It's just that they will go anywhere. We're mostly going to see them on the ground, of course, because, you know, A, it's more common, and B, they're just out in the open when they're on the ground. Tim, has this kind of changed your mind about getting up into trees? Are you, are you comfortable to just have a normal kind of experience up your ladder now? I mean, I don't normally climb a lot of trees and end up three meters in the air. I was actually, I was actually hanging a, I was actually hanging a sign for the referendum up, uh, just you know, because it fronts onto the train line, and I thought I'll get a bit of exposure there. Didn't expect to be being exposed to a to a tiger snake, but I'm I mean, super the plan impressed. is always to the, the plan is always to kind of keep cool when they're around. We knew that we know that they live in our area. We've moved into their habitat more or less. Indeed. But um, I guess the thing is, I know what to do, and I keep teaching. I've got young kids, so I keep teaching them what to do. But in the event that say they did end up uh, bumping into one and we there was an interaction like you know what do i do what do i do if my kids are bitten by a tiger yeah great question the the first thing you do is stay calm uh if they've got any constrictive clothing let's say uh, a bite on the leg or the foot take off any constrictive clothing uh take a bandage and strong pressure what we call it we call it a pressure mobilization bandage so the idea is to put strong pressure but not losing circulation so you should be able to still see the blood going to the toes and that kind of thing but we want it firm all the way up the limb uh, from the foot all the way up regardless of where you were bitten on the limb uh, if it was on the arm same thing start at the hand all the way up to the shoulder as far high as you can go uh, you then want to immobilize the limb uh, and so get a splint or a stick or something along those lines and then just bandage it next to the limb so that you can't bend at the knee or you can't bend at the elbow and you're forced to kind of hold it still. Uh, and then very calmly take them to the hospital. Uh, your nearest regional centre, your nearest hospital should have a stock of antivenom. If you call on the way through and they don't have some, they can liaise with yeah. a nearby hospital and get some brought in for you.
Oh, Tim, you've given us so much information. Thank you so much. And the fact that you're able to stay up on that ladder and then continue working is all right because your legs go a bit wobbly when something scary happens. Or something exciting. Or, yeah. Exactly. That, that's just how I go up a ladder. Like, that's what I'm actually scared. I, I know we're making fun here, but that genuinely, oh, yes, snakes, spiders, no issue. Put me up a step ladder and I'm shaking and dropping light bulbs like it's going out of style. Well, that's statistically, that's really the right terrible. response to have yes, to ladders. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you, Andrew and Timothy. Thank you. We've had a lot of texts coming in asking about snake and dogs, snake mm. encounters with dogs, mm. what to do. Is it possible to train dogs to be more cautious? But what if a dog is snake bit? I was wondering you might be able to help some people on that. So, you know, in answer to the first question, it is possible to train snakes, uh, train dogs, um, <laughs> to be more cautious around snakes, but it's an intensive, um, you know, exposure type training. So you need people with snakes and you need, you know, proper training programs. I mean, honestly, the best thing to do is that if you're in any kind of bushy area where there are snakes is to keep the dogs on the lead. Mm. Um, the, the numbers of bites are remarkably few given the number of snakes and the number of dogs around, but they're also quite common. And dogs can suffer greatly from snake bite. If they're, if they're, if they're running around, you know, Andrew was just describing a pressure immobilisation method. You know, if a, if a dog's been running around excitedly sniffing, getting into things, encounters a snake, probably gets even more excited, probably grabs it because snakes are very, very unlikely to bite dogs unless the dogs are, you know, biting them, let's say. Um... This is a, a very serious situation in the sense that, you know, dog has an elevated heart rate, venom is, is going to be coursing through that system relatively rapidly. So hopefully you've seen it happen. Uh, hopefully you've seen this interaction. And in that case, you know, you're just getting your dog to the vet as rapidly as possible. Of course, you're trying to keep the dog calm and still and all of those things that we were just talking about in terms of first aid with humans, but that can be difficult with dogs. So just get them to the vet as soon as possible. Um, otherwise, you know, you might see that the dog starts to have, you know, weak limbs, is drooling excessively, even bleeding from the gums and mm. things like that. You know, any of those sorts of signs, I mean, different things could be going on, but they're all emergency situations. So again, it's just to the vet as soon as possible. And do vets have a, a stash of antivenom in the same way that hospitals do? A, a lot of vets do, yeah. There's certainly antivenoms available that are uh, useful in pets and effective in pets. And there's also blood tests that they can do to mm -hmm. check to see. So if you didn't see the bite occur itself, but you were out in a, a grassland area and the dog was running around, then has suddenly changed behaviour. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. <laughs> Good morning, Rochelle Hunt and Nick Healy with you. Yes, we're talking snakes. They're coming out earlier. Maybe you've seen one in your local area. Dr Andrew Watt, Dr Timothy Jackson are both with you. The Australian Venom Research Unit. They're from the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. So many messages and texts and questions on this one again. Let's just do another really quick animal question. It says, cats and snakes, is it true it takes 24 hours for symptoms to show? No. Full stop. <laughs> right. No. There's a lot of myths, isn't there, yeah. when it comes to yeah. snakes. You know, even... The, the one that I know we touched on last time, which is that baby snakes are more aggressive sure. and they don't know what to do with their venom. That's a myth as well. Yeah, look, that's a myth. Uh, baby snake venom may be dramatically different from adult snake venom, as it is in the case of brown snakes. But, um, yeah, the idea that they're more aggressive or don't know how to meter their venom and therefore are going to deliver you more or something like that, that's certainly a myth. As far as the cat thing is concerned, it is worth noting that the, you know, the time course of the 
pathology um, induced by snake envenoming is incredibly variable, right? So it can be the case that it takes many, many hours. Depends what type of toxins, depends what yeah. type of snake, all sorts of things. Uh, but it can be also a very, very rapid thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a myth as a blanket statement. Look, another myth I wouldn't mind having you talk about, uh, it's been on the text line a little bit too, people saying, oh, red bellies are always welcome around here. When I grew up in southern New South, uh, yeah, far southern New South Wales, there was always this idea that red belly black snakes were just lazy little guys <laughs> who were just going to have a nap, never an issue, never worry about them. How true is that? Look, you certainly get bites by red belly blacks. Yeah, uh, yeah. We don't see as many bites as with brown snakes and those kinds of things. Huh. So there, there may be a little bit of truth to it. In the same token, they are a venomous snake. <laughs> uh, we, we've got a couple of resident uh, red belly blacks out at the train station uh, out where I live in regional Victoria, um, and they largely keep to themselves. Um, do however, people know about that? Do uh, other yeah, residents we do. It's, it's, know? it's shared on the local sort of Facebook right. page, or they're out and about, and they were out and about the other day. Uh, but it's largely if you keep to yourself, uh, they'll keep to them. And it is worth noting that there are no substantiated fatal bites on record from red belly black snakes. Oh, there so they're, we go. they're very, very different <laughs> from things like brown snakes in, in that regard. There are, as Andrew was saying, there are fewer bites. And we normally would say you'd have to be working pretty hard to get bitten by a red belly. You probably have to be like really directly physically interacting with it. Browns are much more skittish. Red bellies much less likely to bite. You know, another thing that I thought you were going to say in terms of myths surrounding red bellies is that, well, if you've got red bellies, you don't have browns because the red bellies eat the browns. Look, I'd heard that as well. Red bellies do eat browns, but also browns eat red bellies. You know, oh, like bigger bigger snakes <laughs> eat smaller snakes, pretty much in general. Um, and certainly, red bellies and browns are very much sympatric, which means they live together. Wow. So you can't say that because you have red bellies, you don't have browns or tigers or, or whatever. They eat each other. Snakes I eat love, each other. It's a great meal love. for a snake. Wow, it's We're a get- snake eat snake world. Yeah. Yeah. You're <laughs> so shocked about that, but it is. We're going to try and get through some of these calls. But first, I want to read this. My dad was feeding his racing pigeon one time. He was squatting down to do something and then looked up to stand and to see that he had a brown snake two inches from his face. He backed up and he was stuck in the cage until <laughs> until he rang my sister on his mobile to help. The snake eventually left without incident. Maria's in East Gippsland. Good morning, Maria. Good morning. What's your story? Oh, I don't have a story. I just had a question. Does anybody actually know whether the snake repellents that emit those intermittent sounds actually work? Uh, we have a reasonably good idea that they don't work. So, I mean, the, they are not based on any solid science saying that, you know, these particular frequencies, this particular, you know, pulsing um, deters snakes. Uh, and there's a little bit of a, a controversy out there it, um, about it in the snake catcher community. You know, some snake catchers will say they've seen more snakes in yards where there are snake repellents and we, they've even seen them curled around the snake repellents and things like that. <laughs> I can't vouch for that. I mean, I've seen the photos, but I couldn't say for sure that the snake catcher didn't put the snake there. But we have Ooh, a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah. um, but we have a pretty good idea that they don't work. So snake oil, we might call them, yeah. Oh, very nice. nice. Maria, sorry about that, but thank you. Um, Simon's in Geelong. Simon, there's a bit of a video of a snake doing the rounds on social media. Yeah, just um, I saw it yesterday. There was a video. If you just uh, type Queensland snaking engine, there was like a five-metre python that was climbing from a roof across to one tree and then across to a second tree. And... Uh, 
it's a pretty spectacular video, just at the risk of scaring everyone about trees even more <laughs> yeah. than we already were. We're really trying to get the snakes in the sky routine sort of going <laughs> across, aren't we? Yeah, look, pythons and snakes are these incredibly uh, muscular creatures uh, whose bodies work phenomenally differently to ours. Their ability to climb, their ability to, climb, to span gaps and those kinds of things is, is amazing to watch. And unlike our venomous snakes, sorry, many of our pythons are in fact arboreal, so they spend a great deal of time climbing. And yeah, some of them get very, very big. Another fact or fiction question. A snake uh, can bite you whilst you're swimming in water. For example, if a snake is in a river uh, through summer and snake crosses the water and comes at you and bites you. That's from Nick in Oven. So can you get bitten if you are now swimming with snakes. Yes, uh, snakes uh, don't take the same rule of, as we do, where you have to wait half an hour after a meal. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, it, look, if the snake's there and you're there, they can bite you. In the water? Yes. Are they They're fast? amazing to see swim. They're amazing yeah, to see swim. Now I'm not swimming, climbing trees, <laughs> ladders, doing anything. Are they fast swimmers? Some of them are very fast swimmers, yeah. I mean, different snakes have different capacities. Of course, there are sea snakes. You know, there are more than 40 species of sea snake that do originate from Australia as well. Um, and they're excellent swimmers. Some of them are even pelagic, so they live in the open oceans. But most snakes, well, all snakes really can swim. And many snakes, you know, we've been speaking of tiger snakes as a go-anywhere snake. You know, that very much includes the waterways. And they will even hunt underwater. Little tiger snakes will catch tadpoles and things wow. like that. So, yeah, they're very capable swimmers. And given how extreme our weather is, it's getting hotter and we've had flooding, are they mm. migrating towards water more? I mean, are snakes going in one direction or another, depending on the weather? They're going to be the same as anyone, really, which is they're going where the food is. Uh, so if, they, if we think about the floods and those kinds of things, rodent populations are going to be pushed out of homes and habitats uh, based on flooding, as are small lizards and other things. Uh, that's the food for a lot of snake species. So they're going to be following the tracks that those animals are taking um, which is bad news because that's also what we <laughs> tend to do uh, with, look we're not trying to say look snakes are everywhere but we're not trying to say be afraid to go out and explore the world because by and large they're defensive creatures uh, if you see who's going to win a swing race though me or a snake like who's it depends, it depends on the snake oh, how much training have you done <laughs> <laughs> If you're already thinking that, or if yeah. things have already gone very badly, you don't have the winner's like. instinct. Yeah, snakes don't. The general point that's worth making is that snakes really don't, except under the most exceptional of circumstances, chase people, yes. right? So it doesn't matter if you're swimming or walking or whatever, or on horseback, you know. Um, if a snake is swimming towards you, it probably sees you as somewhere that it can get a rest, like it might be wanting to climb out of the water onto you or something like that, or it's just incidentally swimming towards you and we shouldn't be such narcissists to think that the snake actually cares that we're there necessarily. It probably hasn't even seen you, so it just happens to be moving in your direction. Just give it a little lift if it needs a lift. <laughs> no. Look, while we're talking, talking um, behaviour and climate change, I certainly remember um, I lived in the Pilbara for a short period of time mm. and you'd know that it could get too hot for snakes. Sure. It could get way too oh, hot. Yeah, snakes absolutely. would actually get out of the sun. Uh, are we, as we see mm. temperatures rising globally, expecting to see those sort of behavioural changes as well? Yeah, look, we... <laughs> Things are going to change, right? So snakes yeah. are utilising, you know, very, very complex microenvironments within whatever habitat they exist in in order to thermoregulate. Snakes, like other reptiles, don't make their own body heat. They don't maintain their own body temperature at a constant rate by burning energy, as mammals do, for example, or birds. So they use the environment to thermoregulate. They come out into the sun when the temperature's right for doing that. They hide when it's too hot. I mean, snakes in Melbourne, you know, it gets too hot for snakes in summer in the middle of the day in Melbourne, so they're all going to be hiding. So 
you know, it's how long is a piece of string? It's a difficult yeah. question uh-huh. to answer. But if we have environments that are that are complex, so not sort of monocultures or, you know, just urban environments, which don't have a lot of thermal variation, which enables snakes and other critters like that, lizards and things to thermoregulate, then they're going to suffer that much more. If we have natural complex environments with crevices and logs and grass and trees and cliffs, all these different things, then snakes are going to be better able to thermoregulate. And snakes are distributed all over the continent, of course, with its very, very diverse climate that you know we already have and we have had historically. And different snakes utilise their environments in, in different ways and have different preferred temperature ranges. Again, a really simple way to think about it. If it's, if it's nice in the sun and you want to get out there, you're probably going to see snakes. Yes. If it's a little bit too hot for you to go for a run and those kinds of things and you want to seek the shade, they're going to be having those same basic behaviours. Are they always seeking out our toilets? You know when you always <laughs> see photographs and videos of someone opening their toilet they're and a big a fan snakes are a huge fan of modern plumbing yeah. uh, like they start out i think with the aqueducts and the romans no look it, it's a water source isn't it it's a nice cool environment on a hot day with it with an active water source uh so maybe they are maybe they are they could be to and a certain if extent if you're in hot dry parts of the country it's pretty common to see like a big green frog living in the toilet right many people in australia will have seen this you know snakes might be interested in that frog as well as the water so avoid the toilets now too <laughs> think about what you've got in your backyard as well, like if you've got a little pond or a lake mm. or something, mm-hmm. a water feature of some kind, they're going to be drawn to that because local wildlife is as well. Oh, look, when I was a kid, you'd pull snakes out of the pool all the time. Mm. Look, we'll get a call in from <laughs> Helen. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you did a lot. Heather in Ellen Bank, um, talking seriously, Heather, you've actually had your dog bitten multiple times. Yeah, yes, that's correct. Um, she's been bitten three times by tiger snakes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, I get very, very good at picking her up, chucking her in the car and mm. driving to the vet really fast. <laughs> Does it build up? I mean, will that dog start to get, a, a, I guess, build up some kind of... You can tolerance. Tolerance. That's the word Ooh, I was looking for. Okay. Thank you. So what I was going to say is the reverse of that. Yeah. Uh, one, is your dog okay at the moment? Um, I think she's got some neurological effects. Right. Okay. Oh, very so sorry to hear that. that. No, she's fine, really. Great. Good to to hear that she's still kicking and sorry to hear about the neurological side of things. There's a couple of things that can happen. You can develop anaphylaxis to both the venom and the anti-venom. And so obviously with things, with any kind of allergic response, it's going to be the more you're exposed to it, the higher the chance that you're going to have a stronger response to it. Now, that doesn't necessarily always occur, but it can occur. Uh, It, It is possible for immunity to develop as well. But, I mean, through, like, the way we hyperimmunize horses to make antivenom, for example, you know, exposures over long periods of time to small amounts of venom. And, you know, humans can immunize themselves as well. It's not a very good idea. Please you don't. Don't do it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it wouldn't have broad-spectrum effectiveness against other snakes either, and you always do run the risk of developing this sort of hypersensitivity reaction. But in essence, you know, you can develop antibodies to toxins. But three exposures for your dog, it's unlikely that that, that would have occurred, yeah. Harry's in kind. Morning, Harry. G'day, Rish. How are you going? Good, mate. I'm a little freaked out, but other than that, I'm good. What, <laughs> what was your question? Well, look, we've, you know, they've conquered all the known terrains. Now, they, <laughs> the other thing that I'm now packing my pants about is do the buggers come out in the dark? 
Oh, do snakes come out in the dark? Absolutely. There are a huge number of species of nocturnal snake in Australia, (laughs) and particularly as you move move north, you know, the greater percentage of snakes are going to become nocturnal for exactly the reasons we've been talking about in terms of thermoregulation. It's too hot during the day for a lot of snakes in northern parts of Australia. And many snakes, even in, say, Melbourne, are what we would call facultatively nocturnal, which might sound, you know, weird or complex, but it just means that if the weather's right, they'll be nocturnal. So on a really hot day, in summer, you know, if you go out into an area, walk along a creek, something like that with a flashlight, wow. you might see a tiger snake crossing the road or crossing the path. You know, during spring, you're going to see them basking during the day. It just depends on what the weather's like. It's really like what you were saying, Andrew, about how we would, if it's a really stinking hot day and it's been too hot to go outside and then all yeah. of a sudden mm. it cools down a little mm. bit, you think, okay, now I'm going to go for my right, walk. For an evening get up, I'll get that midnight snack. I'll go for a walk <laughs> across the road. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's now's <laughs> the time. I feel great. And look, if you, you know, kindness, that's out near my neck of the woods. If you're out at night and you're worried and you're going to be walking in areas, uh, wear closed-toed shoes, take a torch, take a torch. Uh, do things that are simple and going to prevent mm-hmm. the bite from occurring in the first place. Look, another quick call, Victor in Lara. Victor, good morning, yeah. mate. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm quite amused by all the entrenched beliefs and the phobias <laughs> I'm hearing coming across in the program. <laughs> um, I think it's often horses for courses. It depends on uh, who you are and uh, how you've lived your life. Um, for example, I'm north of 60 and I'm still climbing ladders, trees, walking on roofs. <laughs> but I fully understand there are people half my age that shouldn't be doing that. It's a matter of how comfortable you are and what your skill set is. Okay, um, I have a question and I have a, a, a story I'd like to relate. My question is how wary should we be of snakes during their mating season uh-huh. and are there species that are more protective of their young than others? Good question. Mm. So, look, we are, we are sort of talking about snakes in spring to some degree here. We're talking about when snakes become more active, particularly in the southern states where we do see that transition from winter to spring. And as Andrew was saying, you know, we all enjoy that. So do the snakes. And this is the time when after a period of brumation, Again, you might see them in the middle of the winter if the sun's out. But after a period of brumation where they haven't been eating, they're getting hungry and they're also on the lookout for for mates. And especially male snakes in that case are going to be foraging more. Do we need to be wary of them? Just that we're more likely to encounter one in the middle of the path, for example. We're more likely to encounter active snakes. So we just have to be a little bit more wary where we put our feet. They are getting into more places. This might be when they're entering houses and all sorts of things (gasps) as well. Or or sheds or (laughs) gardens or, you know, I'm just suggesting that they're moving more so they're moving through their environments and so we are therefore more likely to encounter them at that time now as to the other question are some snakes more protective of their young than others look most snakes are not at all protective of their young Um, so often snakes either lay their eggs and then leave them or some are live bearing give birth to live babies like tiger snakes which we've talked a lot about give birth to their babies and essentially leave them so far as we know but there are some species which do stay like pythons for example stay with their eggs they wrap around them. They'll even shiver to create a little bit of warmth. So reptiles can generate a little bit of bodily warmth. Um, and then things like king cobras in South and Southeast Asia make a nest. Um, they wait with it until the, uh, the, the little hatchlings mm-hmm. emerge and they will defend that nest. Um, not, I mean, not particularly vigorously, but they will defend the nest. Um, but once the babies hatch, they tend to be on their own as as well. So it's it's a generalisation, but most snakes are not really protective of their young, no. Just the weirdest okay, question okay, I need to ask. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes, just qu- quickly, Victor, what was your last point? Sorry, I was asking about brown snakes, so they're not more protective than others. That's one thing I'd heard. 
Yeah, no, not really. I mean, they they don't they lay eggs, brown snakes, and then they t- tend to leave those eggs thereafter. So the eggs are on their own, and the babies are on their own essentially. Yeah. I just needed to quickly ask for the snakes that do nest. Is there is it the male or the female who does oh, the nesting? Good question. The female, yeah. Right. Okay. Now let's add this to our list of freaky things. This is from <laughs> Di. I can't fact check this. I had one in the shower come up through the outlet in the country area. Yeah, I mean, sure. certainly possible. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like blase yeah. you both are about that. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Up the drain pipe all the time. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, look, you're if shampooing. Don't close your eyes. If it's, if it's mains, that's going to be more difficult, obviously. But if there's, you know, if there's an outlet or a drain that's just going under the house, house. or wherever like yeah. that, then that's one of the major ways snakes enter homes. Sounds like sure. one of the vent pipes or something like that they've yeah. got in there. And, yeah. And I uh, love the way you just casually say one of the major ways snakes enter homes. Like there's a snake in all of our houses. <laughs> this, this is actually an issue in certain other parts of the world like India and sub-Saharan Africa and you know the fact that snakes are that homes are not snake proof mm. um, and there are certain active foraging species that do enter homes and people get bitten often in their homes not to say that never happens in Australia it does happen but it's incredibly rare it's not something we really have to worry about too much lots of people who are asking questions that may have just tuned in about snake repellent saying do its work we've kind of said that no that still, still doesn't facts yep. that we don't think that that works and a baby snake said so are they more venomous than big snakes no they're not that is a myth as well on abc radio melbourne and victoria this is the conversation hour And we're talking snakes today, and they're coming out a little earlier as our weather and our climate changes. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepparton. Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Timothy Jackson with you as well from the Australian Venom Research Unit, the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Before we get to more calls, of which we have plenty on, mm-hmm. the amount of research that the, the two of you have been working on for years now when it comes to how we use venom... Baby snakes is a question that's been coming up a lot and there's a, quite a lot of research that's been going into that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we do get this this myth that we've we've heard on the on the air already today that baby snakes are either more aggressive or don't know how to meter their venom or have more toxic venom than adults. You know, generally speaking, none of these things are true, but some baby snakes do have different venom from their adults, and that's been a really interesting mm-hmm. um, topic of research for me for for a number of years, particularly because the Australian brown snakes are really the only snake that we've looked at in Australia that has a really dramatic shift in venom composition from baby to adult. So baby brown snakes have completely different venom from adults. Now, we're not going to say that that's more toxic venom to humans, actually likely the opposite, but that's a reflection of their changing ecology. So baby brown snakes live in a different way from adult brown snakes. They're actually more nocturnal, which we talked about, Mm. whereas the adult brown snakes are a little bit more diurnal, which means active during the day. They're foraging a little bit differently or at different times. They're encountering different prey animals. So baby brown snakes are eating more lizards. Adult brown snakes are generalists, they eat anything they encounter, but including a lot more mammals. And as that diet shifts over the life history of the snake, so too we see a strong shift in the venom composition. Uh, the clinical consequences of that are difficult to to extrapolate from what we know about the, the actual venom composition and the evolutionary consequences. Um, but we certainly wouldn't say that the babies have more toxic venom than the adults as a general thing. In terms of what venom gets used for medically, like I'm imagining mm. anticoagulants, but but what else? 
Well, if you think about venoms as these, uh, they're this complex mix of proteins uh, which have been evolved to hit certain, I mean, largely mammalian sort of targets, right? So these wonderful little toxins uh, hold great promise uh, for very specifically hitting things like the, the blood system, uh, anticoagulants, as you mentioned, uh, pain receptors, those kinds of things. Uh, some of them are neurotoxins, so they're hitting uh, more neurological things. And so if we isolate... And, and purify specific toxins out, we can start to investigate whether they uh, have any medicinal worth. Uh, and there's a couple of groups. I mean, there's obviously work uh, going on around the world. There's a, a group I know based up in, I think, Sydney that's doing some work with a neuropeptide that's looking at a, a venom uh, toxin that's looking at Alzheimer's disease, a potential target. Oh, wow. Uh, as well as a group in Queensland that's looking at funnel web uh, spider venom uh, as pain medication. But really all sorts of things that Andrew is saying. You know, venoms are incredibly diverse. And we sometimes refer to them as like natural pharmacopoeias, right? So they are like drug libraries that have been created by nature. Now, obviously, most of those toxins in those drug libraries, they have deleterious effects that we don't necessarily want. But because they target all these different regulatory systems in the, in the bodies of all sorts of different animals, the animals that are either the prey or predators of venomous creatures, there's just an incredibly diverse range of, of, of activities. So there are interesting venom toxins for possible repurposing as, uh, you know, therapeutic medicines all over the place. This says, my parents live on a farm in South Gippsland. They have a resident copperhead living in their woodstock and it's lived there for years. They first saw it when it's a baby. It's now quite big and no longer escapes into the woods while they're around. It happily stays out in the sun. My parents go about their day. It doesn't bother them and they don't bother it. That's from Mary. Fantastic. Jacqueline's in Rye. Morning, Jacqueline. Oh, good morning. Um, I unfortunately have a story about a snake entering a house. <laughs> um, so, my, oh, fortunately, um, according to our two experts. <laughs> What's your story? Um, so my uh, younger sister lives in Alice Springs and she lives in quite an old house. And they were going to bed one night and their border collie was sniffing around and trying to, I guess, tell them there was something in the bedroom. And they sort of eventually were like, no, 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 go to sleep, Rosie. Rosie slept under the bed. So off to sleep she went under the bed reluctantly. And my sister was just about to turn the light off and out of the corner of her eye looked down and a snake was slithering out from under the bed. (laughs) And so it it was screams and it was all happening. And, of course, you know, the snake catcher up there is on speed dial, so uh, it's called called the snake catcher. Um, And it turned out that it was a western brown that was um, under sleeping with the dog under the bed. <laughs> you should see these two in the studio, mate. They are just cool as cucumbers, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Nothing yeah. faces them. That's, snake slithers well, out from... That sounds like a wonderful story of a snake that visited and then left. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, another textbook example of how to deal with it. Uh, call someone that's able to handle it and get it out of there. We- and I guess if you live in an environment where th- that's potentially going to happen, I personally would move, but <laughs> <laughs> have the snake catcher's number... Absolutely. 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 There is a car that parks on my street that has a big bumper sticker on the back Mm -hmm. saying Victorian Snake Catcher because I believe they work at the vets nearby. And uh, when I'm out walking my cat, which we can get to that conversation (laughs) later, uh, there is no car that is more exciting to smell than the one that has been full of snakes. We have to go straight over Mm. there. We have to sniff it as hard as we can. It's incredibly exciting to him. He loves it. We have to remember that uh, cats are way more dangerous to snakes than snakes are to cats, right? Uh, In terms of the number of actual incidents or animals killed. (laughs) 
so, yeah, I'm not surprised. And there's a lot of work that's been done by many councils, in particular the Bass Coast, I know it's working really hard to keep cats inside. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. I mean, when we think about why that is and what they're protecting, people wouldn't necessarily think snakes first thing. But <laughs> but keeping keeping snakes protected from cats is important. Absolutely. Look, they're, they're a key part of the local ecology. So if you mm. get rid of them, you have other things taking over that we don't necessarily want. Obviously, cats are sort of renowned for hitting birds and rodents. We don't mind them necessarily hitting rodents if they're a pest. Um, but if we get rid of snakes and we get rid of this uh, predator within the system, all of a sudden you might see more more mice, more rats and those kinds of things. And, and people don't love them in houses either. And, and certainly if you look at gut content studies on feral cats, they're absolutely full of lizards and snakes and, you know, anything that moves essentially cats are you know incredibly efficient predators uh so they do they do kill many small animals all snakes are protected in australia by law right so the the value of these creatures to our ecologies to our biodiversity has been recognized for a long time at the federal level so that's a really good thing and then you can also think about this as just sort of reciprocal protection right snakes can be dangerous to cats too right um so keep the cat inside it's protected from the snakes and the snakes are protected from it and everybody's that little bit safer I'm a firm believer that uh, cats, sorry, not snakes, snakes can be inside whenever they want, but cats have to be inside. They're an inside animal. They should only be let outside when supervised. Natalie on the line in Yarra Glen, I think with another myth we might need to get busted. Natalie, good morning. Good morning. I am wondering, can a dead tiger snake give birth to live baby tiger snakes? Horrifying. I love it. Look. I mean, it really just depends on when the snake was killed, right? So if, if, the, if, the, if the snake was, say, hit by a car in very, very late-term pregnancy, then it could still, there could still be viable, you know, ready-to-be-born baby snakes and that, I mean, just as can tragically happen with humans, right? So as, as tiger snakes are live bearers, they give birth to live young, really the question is just about how late in their development are we? Are they ready to go? they're ready to go then for sure and the snake might even have been split open by the car when it was hit and you might see this dead snake on the road with baby tiger snakes wriggling out of it i think the other thing to note is that uh, dead snakes can envenom you of course. Uh, so be really? very very careful oh, yeah. when handling uh, a snake even if it's dead they Don't still have venom in the system in uh, there may be some nervous response that will lead to uh, the mouth closing and those kinds wow. of things but yeah oh the things i learn when you two come into the studio <laughs> pete's called through he's in where are you in darren or pete yeah, Darren, or near uh, Heathcote. Oh, so beautiful. Victoria. Welcome. Yeah. What did you want to say? Uh, so I found a snake skin near the house the other day, and it was there was no colour to it. But I was wondering if there was a way to identify the type of snake from the skin. Mm-hmm. Well, con- congratulations. You've now got a slightly bigger snake around your house. <laughs> uh, Check your toilet. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you can identify a snake by the snake skin if you have certain sections of the skin that are sufficiently intact. So snakes can generally be identified um, at least to the family level, maybe to the genus level. So you might be able to say, okay, this is not a python, it's an elapid, so it's a venomous snake perhaps. You might be able to say, okay, this is not a black snake, it's a brown snake, so at the genus level. And that's by looking at the scales essentially, right? So different species of snakes, different groups of snakes have different patterns of scales on their head, have different numbers of scale rows at mid body, have different numbers of scales after the cloaca, after the vent, so on the tail, etc, etc. So if you go online or if you get a field guide and it has the scale counts in there, you'll be able to use those scale counts and you'll need a little reference key, no doubt, if you're not experienced in keying out snakes by their scalation. Uh, you'll be able to do that. It'd be fun, a little exercise, especially if you've got kids or anyone, very educational. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I know we've got red bellies around, mm-hmm. but uh, I was wondering if it was a, 
uh, a brand. Yeah, well, so you'd be able to, to differentiate those from a scale count, so just look up the numbers, yeah. Pete, thank you very much. I've got to say, I've now got a pair of um, snakeskin cowboy boots that I'm feeling very guilty about. As you should. Try and yeah. Where they come from. I'll go and have a look well, at that. Well, you'll be able to specify where <laughs> yeah. you should feel guilty about them by counting the scales. Can, Can I ta- ask about the brain worm? Can I please ask about <laughs> the brain worm? <laughs> Yesterday, the big news that no one could stop talking about, the, the woman who presented to a Canberra hospital, um, head achy, forgetful, a bit depressed, a eight-centimetre-long parasite removed from her brain. A uh, parasite mostly known for being part of uh, in pythons normally how after eating warrigal greens how yeah look uh, you know if you get if you get python poo uh, obviously parasites and those kinds of things are expressed in poo i should clarify that we're not parasite experts or anything along those lines but if we walk it through logically if you get if you get some kind of fecal matter which contains either an ova or a parasite or a cyst or something along those lines and then you ingest it i think we mentioned that it was uh, greens or spinach or something you're not going to necessarily cook those to as high a temperature as you'd say cook meat or something along those lines which also carries parasites so you might have just not uh, killed the parasite as it's gone in. What's fascinating is yeah. that she's managed to digest it and the, the worm has gone through the system, through the blood, through the blood-brain barrier and then found a home in her brain. It's a So why the brain? Is, there, is it because, I mean, the, the surgeon that removed the worm from his brain was actually mm. talking about some of the clever ways mm. in which it was trying to find the perfect home for itself within her own body. Ooh. Is the brain kind of warm and squishy and a good place to <laughs> hang out? <laughs> for, that, for, the, for that worm, apparently. I mean, so, I mean, as Andrew was saying, you know, she likely ingested sort of eggs, right? So not an actual living worm. And that might be why they survived the cooking process, because often these things are, you know, very, very robust, very resilient. You know, it could be sitting out there in dried up snake poo in the sun for a long period of time before it contacts another host. But why the brain? I mean, I mean... Parasites can be very, very specialised for very specific tissues, very specific organs that have certain temperatures, that have certain good hidey holes or good food or whatever it might be. Um, or they can be very generalist as well. Many other parasites might find a home in, in many different organs. So hard to say why the brain in this case. I love the shift in attitude and conversation around snakes. And it's something, I mean, we were talking about the comparison with cats. And we actually have seen it with cats too, where I know years ago where we spoke about keeping cats indoors, everybody was horrified. Mm. Mm, now everybody mm. understands that that's really where you should be keeping your cat. What's come through today is people learning to or at least trying to learn to live with snakes, except that they are going to be in our homes, in our waterways, down on our train lines, wherever it may be. I guess my final question is, how can we educate ourselves a little more so that we can do the right thing? Just for example here, it says snakes on golf courses are a nightmare for me, and that's from Maddie. <laughs> so whether you're playing golf, maybe you work at a golf course, a school, you work along train lines just having that knowledge that idea of i know what to do in this situation how do we get better i think one of the things to note is it's it's fine to be scared of snakes. I don't particularly like snakes, uh, but they're what? fascinating creatures, right? I, we always, uh, I always say, and Tim doesn't like it, that Tim's the snake guy, I'm the people guy. My, my focus <laughs> is more on uh, the people who are bitten and those kinds of things. It's reasonable the to be scared. The implication is that a snake person cannot be a people person. But Tim, no, Tim's I do both. I'm just, I I'm do just object. a snake guy. Uh, it's reasonable to be afraid of these things. They're very, very different. They can kill us. They can hurt us. However, they're a fascinating part of our native uh, wildlife. Just as we love looking at koalas and kangaroos and those kinds of things. Snakes are equally important. No, local. Snakes are more important. <laughs> snakes <laughs> are more interesting. <laughs> 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 Hanging out with the koalas, apparently. So, look, so. If, if, 
if you're playing golf and you can't stay still a little while to appreciate a snake going across or hit around or those kinds of things, it sounds like you're too stressed. Uh, <laughs> golf might not be a sport for you. Right? <laughs> the work that the two of you do is incredible. Dr. Andrew Watt, Dr. Timothy Jackson, who are from the Australian Venom Research Unit, the School of Biomedical Sciences, which is a part of the University of Melbourne. You've got some incredible research on your website as well, which people can look to. We always say we're going to try and get to that. And then we always <laughs> derail and talk about bloody snakes in a tree or in your toilet or in your drain or whatever it may be. They're in your house, Rochelle. They come <laughs> into your house. Can I just, can you stop talking right now? But I think, I think Rochelle, to, to, to what you were saying about changing attitudes, you know, a big part of it is just that acceptance to begin with that mm-hmm. snakes are around. Snakes are going to be around, even if we wanted or thought it was a good idea to exterminate them. And again, remember, all snakes are protected by law in yeah, Australia, exactly. so it is not a good idea um, and it is illegal to attempt to kill them. They are going to be around. So, you know, we do have to, so, you know, expect to see them. And then, you know, you're actually going to be quite lucky or, you know, you might say unlucky. It's unlikely that you're actually going to see them. Snakes don't want to be seen. They're very cryptic animals. But if you're out and about, just know you might see one. And then all you need to know is that, you know, the snake that you've seen is really not a dangerous snake at this point because you've seen it. You can keep, you know, a safe distance, give it a respectful distance, leave it alone, it will leave you alone. Most likely, as soon as it sees you, it's going to move in the opposite direction. Very good advice. Dr Andrew Watt, Dr Timothy Jackson, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.